Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. How are you guys? Good? Yeah. Um, man, I just, I feel like um, maybe just for all of us that there's something that needs to get reset inside of a lot of us where we have allowed ourselves to settle for just speaking to the mountain and believing that that's, that's enough, that that's faith, and, and not even expecting it to move. Like, like we start out, right, with that zeal and that excitement because we really believe that nothing is impossible for Him. The fact that you're speaking to a mountain means that you believe something. Because only a crazy person stands and speaks to something that has no ears and expects it to respond. But if we're not careful, the first time it doesn't move, we start to get a little bit discouraged. The second time, we get even more discouraged. By the third time, we're so discouraged that we don't even expect it to move the fourth time we speak. Now we're just doing it because it's a Christian habit. And we're calling it faith. By the fifth time, we start to make up reasons why it's not. By the sixth time, we have a theology that backs up what we believe. And by the seventh, we don't even bother to speak anymore because God doesn't do that because that's not His will. Listen, there's a lot of things that aren't happening in our lives that have nothing to do with the fact that it's not God's will for our lives. It's Jesus on a hill crying for a city, saying how I would have loved. It was my desire. It was my will to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does with her chicks, but you would not let me. I don't want to get to the end of my life and when I talk to him, him say, Roy, I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. I really wanted to do that. How I would have loved, Roy, to do this, but you wouldn't let me. Not but it wasn't my will, not but I don't do that anymore, but you, Roy, you wouldn't let me. You wouldn't let me because of the things that you believe. You wouldn't let me because of the times that you didn't give your attention. You, didn't, you wouldn't let me because you allowed yourself to believe something that you couldn't see in my life and you made a theology around something that doesn't exist in the Word of God and you lived below the life that you could have lived if you would have just let me. And I, I, when I read the Word, it's, it's easy. Like when we read things where Jesus is talking to the, to the Pharisees and think, oh, those Pharisees. And, and, and just totally write off that, that He would ever speak something like that to me. You know, or the disciples. Like, oh, those disciples. And, and just completely eliminate the fact that there might be times in my life where He would say the same things to me that He said to the disciples. Or the city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. He's saying, listen, my Father's been trying to speak to you and you kill the people He sends. And how many times in our lives, if we're not careful, can we with our words destroy the people that God sends to speak into our lives because we're not ready to, willing to, or wanting to hear the Word that He's speaking through them. And I want to be real careful in my life, and I feel like you know all of us need to be careful in our own lives, that we don't place ourselves into some other position and assume that Jesus would never look us in the eyes and say, oh, how I would have loved to do this. 
I mean, think about that. Think about Jesus looking you in the eyes, staring at you with those eyes of love and fire. And when you're looking in his face, any doubt of anything being impossible will be completely erased at that point. And you'll know then what you could know now. That nothing really is impossible. And for him to look at you with those eyes and say, Oh, Roy. Weeping. He's not weeping for himself. He's not weeping because he's rejected. He's not weeping because he's hurt and offended and needs somebody to make him feel better by accepting what he has to say. He has no need in and of himself for the people to to believe him or accept him. It's all 100% completely for them that he's weeping. There's not one ounce of poor me in Jesus. There's every bit of poor them because if they could have saw me for who I am, they could have lived the life that I came for them to live, how I would have loved. And I don't ever want to think that He would look me in the eyes with tears flowing down, looking at me and me being the object and the source of the pain that He's feeling because He sees my life and sees where it falls less than the glory of God that He came for me to live in. And I don't ever want to think that He could look me in the eyes and say, oh, Roy, how I would have loved to. How I would have loved to have been your friend and spent every day with you and spoke to you and encouraged you and been the one that believed in you and championed you on. How I would have loved to have been that person, but you wouldn't let me. Just think about that. Like, Not because he needs a friend. Because I do. Not because He's destroyed by the fact that I'm not letting Him be who He wants to be in my life, but because I am. I remember we were in Chicago one time. We went up there for a, a conference. I think it might have been the last conference that I ever attended. 2010. Not, not that there was anything wrong with it. It was so amazing, I never needed another one. Put it that way. And 2010, yeah, so five years ago. Was that 2010? Okay, sure, sounds good. It makes a good story. 11. 2011. Okay, so we were there, and it was like... Um, it was an awesome conference. Jesus Culture was there, and Hillsong was there leading worship, and Bill Johnson was speaking, and Reinhard Bonnke was speaking, and all these amazing speakers. But the most profound thing that happened to me happened to me during a time of worship when I was just worshiping God, and, and I ended up on my knees. And, and I'm the kind of person that, like, if I'm excited about something, I want you to be excited about it too. Like, I'll chase you with my food. You are going to try it, and you are going to think it's as good as I do. Jonathan Field is the same way. Yeah. Like, if you eat dinner with me and John, you are going to try our food. And you're going to like it, because if you don't like it, then there's something wrong with the bite I gave you, so I'm going to give you another bite. (laughs) Because there's no way I'm this excited, and you're not. But I'm like that with everything. 
Like, if I'm excited about something that's going on, I want you to be excited about it too. And if you're not excited, it means I haven't done a good enough job of explaining it to you, is how I feel. Because certainly, if you saw it the way I see it, you would be just as excited as I am. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> and, and, and I have that in me, that I want people to be excited. And so, it was during worship, and... I was praying and I just hear this small, still voice say, I'm the one. And I got real quiet then, you know, it's like, and it was like, Roy, you know how when you're running, you always want to look behind to make sure people are running with you. When you're excited, you always want people to be excited with you. I'm the one. I'm excited about what you're excited about. I'm more excited than you are. You don't ever have to look behind to see if someone's running with you. I'm always running right with you. And I'm just now weeping, you know, and it's like, and he's saying, I came to be that for you. I want to be your everything. And it's like, in that moment, every bit of doubt or need for other people to be excited about, I still want people to be excited about things. But if they don't, it's okay. I don't have a need in me because I know that he is. Because He created me for that. What a shame to get to the end of my life and Him just grab my face and look me in the eyes with tears and say, I would have longed to have been your friend and be the one that ran with you and be the one that was exciting and be the one that you never had to look behind to see if people were running with you because you knew I was next to you and you wouldn't let me. Because you let so many other things be more important. Guys, like, let's, let's at least consider the fact that there may be things that He wants to do in our lives that are being held back, not by Him, but by us. Like, literally, just consider for a moment that maybe if we were to stand face to face with Him, and not in a condemning way. See, this is the beautiful thing about the Gospel. It's never to point out where you're not. It's always to encourage you into where you can be. It's not to say, like, you bad person are doing this. It's to say, oh my gosh, he's so amazing. He wants to do this. It's not about me not letting him. It's about his desire for me to, for him to be that for me and me seeing it. And what, what else are you going to say? Like, what other answer is there? Yes, okay. We'll be best friends. Like once you, you, you see a love like that, once, like that's why I can't understand if we really believe that He came and died on a cross for us, was crucified for us, and that with love in His eyes, He looked out and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How do you not respond to Him giving His life like that by giving yours in return? How could the answer be anything less than totally saying, okay, I give you everything? If not, maybe there's something we're not seeing or something we're not believing. But what we can't do is we can't allow ourselves to start rewriting the Gospel and finding things that we cannot find in the life of Jesus and accepting them into our theology and settling and saying, well, I guess He must not fill in the blank with your favorite thing that you've become tired of praying about. Think about David. King David, he gets anointed by the same man that anointed Saul to be king. 
He comes and says, the anointing has left Saul and it now is upon you. You are now his man. He is the anointed king of Israel. The throne is rightfully his. The presence of God has left Saul. Samuel even tells him the presence of God has left and he's found another. It's gone. There's no more anointing on Saul. The anointing, the oil and the full anointing of, of the king of Israel rests upon David's shoulders. And then for 14, about 14 years, scholars believe, he's chased from cave to cave, from city to city, by a king who isn't the rightful king who desires to kill him because he's afraid of him taking his throne. Imagine David seven years in. He's only halfway. And you know what the crazy thing is? We read it and we know about how long the time is. He's living it in real time. He has no clue if this is going to go on for another 30 years. It's not as if someone came to him and said, don't worry, you're halfway there. Because we can do anything for a time. As long as we know how long that time is. Because then we can set our hope here and say, yes, this is bad, but there's a day coming here. The problem is, is a lot of times we don't have a timeline. It's just get up every single day and live the life we're called to live and expect to see his goodness and go to bed and expect to see his goodness the next day. And this is David being chased from cave to cave. He's seven or eight years into it. He finally is in a cave. He has a little moment of, of, to himself where he looks around and he starts listing all these things. He says, my enemies desire to eat my flesh. Like He feels like they hate him so bad that if they catch him, they're not just going to kill him, they're going to actually eat him and tear him apart with their teeth. And he says, that's what's chasing me. And he's listing all these things. And you have to understand, he has this promise of God on his life that says, you're the anointed king of Israel. You will sit on the throne. You will lead his people. And he gets anointed with oil by Samuel the prophet. And he, he's in the cave and he feels like this and he starts recounting all these things. His, the, the wife of his youth, Michael, who he loved, Mikhail, however you pronounce her name, it's spelled Michael. <laughs> That'd be weird though. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. <laughs> Mrs. Michael, you know, Queen Michael, I don't know, it might have been Mikhail or Michelle or something like that, but Michelle, that sounds better, right? That's a Southern Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, <laughs> she's from Alabama. <laughs> That's Michelle from Alabama. But, but this is how badly the man that's pursuing him hates him. He takes the woman that he loves that has been given to him and gives her to another man. And she is now sleeping in the bed of another man. And he knows this. And this is all going on. And he's saying, this is happening and that's happening and my enemies and they pursue me and they never... God, why don't you strike them? God, why, where are you? God, why are you holding back vengeance? And when he gets at the end of all of that, he comes to this conclusion. Surely, I would have dismayed had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Not one day when I get to heaven... I will see. And he's settled and he's resolved in that. And it doesn't matter how many years he has to run from cave to cave. He is not going to give up on that. And it's the reason why he can actually finish the assignment that God's given him is because for 14 years, every day he wakes up expecting fully to see God's goodness. 
And whether people respond the way they should or not, whether Saul acts like a maniac or whether people do things that they, are, that they do, people are selling him out. He would go from city to city and people wanting to gain favor with the king and hoping to be paid for it and with their own personal gain in mind would sell him out and say where he was. And when he thought he was safe, when he thought he could relax for a moment, Saul's troops would start coming and he would have to uproot and go somewhere else. And he spends his life this way. One minute he's singing for the king in the court and an evil spirit leaves. The next minute he's being pinned to a wall by a spear with just his cloak being stuck to the wall by the king. And he still serves him. And then the men find Saul sleeping. And they say, you can kill him. God has delivered him into your hands. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get him to do something on his own that God wanted him to wait for him to do. God was wanting David to wait until God Himself placed David on the throne. The enemy's always going to try to get you to get out early, especially when it's hard. When it's going good, He's probably not going to tempt you to get out early. He's going to tempt you to probably take pride in the way that it's going or think that you did everything and you got yourself there and everything's going good because I'm so great. Because when things are going good, that's an easy temptation to fall into. It's not to end it early when things are going good. It's like when you're eating that food that you just don't want it to end. The last thing you're thinking about is stopping before you're done eating. The, the easy thing for you to do there would be to overeat, right? But when you're, when you're a kid and your mom's like, you have to eat broccoli, the, the, you're just like, I, I just want to be done as fast as possible. And the second she says I don't have to eat anymore, I'm throwing out everything else that's on the plate. The season of your life that you're in will depend on the attack of the enemy. He's not going to try to attack you the same way every time. But with David, it was to try to get him to end it early so that he could step into a position that he wasn't ready for yet and he could be somewhere that he wasn't supposed to be and he could be there by his own hand. The problem is is he would have had to rule his kingdom the rest of his life knowing that he got there by his own sword and not by the hand of God. And they said he delivered. Look, there will be people in your life that tell you it. Oh, it's God. God's doing this. I know I can't find anywhere in His Word that backs that up, but it must be the Lord because I can see how it would make you happy. God is way less interested in your happiness than He is in your overall joy. You being happy in the moment is not His greatest concern. You being fulfilled in Him to a place where you have a joy that doesn't depend on circumstance is way more important to Him. Because circumstances come and go. True joy that's from the inside and not from something outside can never change. And it's what can allow you to be in a cave being hunted for seven years, eight years, nine years, ten years. Can you imagine by year 12? Can you imagine by year 13? It's been 13 years since it was prophesied. You were minding sheep, minding your own business. You had no desire to be king. And suddenly you get pulled from the field and this prophet anoints you, and your life changes. And then because you actually believe in your covenant, you get drawn into a battle with a giant, and you kill him. And because people can see the the anointing of God on your life, they start to celebrate you, and it makes the people who aren't anointed around him nervous. It's always going to be like that. When you carry an anointing on your life, and you just walk humbly with God, and you just do the thing that God puts in front of you, people are going to celebrate you for it. Because people who are faithful and do things with no personal ambition are rare. And everybody notices it. The other person that notices it is the one who doesn't have that anointing, who has their own personal ambitions. And they won't be able to stand it. 
So they start singing, David has killed, Saul has killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. I don't know how they made that sound good. I'm sure our musicians could, but I can't. But that was the song they sang. And Saul hears that, and he, from that day forward, cannot stand David. Because he understands, David has something that I don't. There's going to be people in your life that have something you don't, and the way that you respond will determine whether you receive that thing from them and God can give that to you, or whether or not you spend the rest of your life jealous and envious and wishing you had what they did. And if you take the wrong road there, it's a long, hard way to get back. All Saul would have had to do is humble himself. All he would have had to do is go to David and say, David, why weren't you terrified when the giant walked down into the valley? Why didn't you run like everybody else did, David? Why didn't you want my sword? How could you be so confident? What do you have that I don't? Because I see something in you that I don't have. If he would have just humbled himself and do that, there probably could have been forgiveness and maybe David could have been raised to be a king underneath Saul with Saul being carrying the mantle and anointing of father and handing his kingdom off to David the way that God intended rather than it being him taking his own life by his sword. I don't know. But I know it would have been differently because it says if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that He will exalt you. And that promise was just as true that day as it is today if he would have humbled himself and just went to David. But instead of humbling himself, he sees something that he doesn't have in somebody. And so instead of going to him and humbly asking him why, he decides that he's going to hate him. And not only that, but he has to kill him. Because the only way that you can shut people up is to end his life. You know what? Even ending his life wouldn't have shut him up because David would have died the same man that David lived that he hated. I honestly believe, we were talking about this yesterday, I really believe the enemy doesn't really want to kill you as much as he wants you to, to yield yourself to him. Think about Jesus. Jesus is on the cross, and they're going to kill him, but the threat of death is what he's trying to use to manipulate Jesus into bowing his knee to him. So he says, look, if you just, just, just say you're not who they say you are, just sin once. What's Satan doing? Satan's moving in the heart of the Pharisees. Remember, they said, are you the king of the Jews? He looked at him and he said, you say it's so. They never called him the king of the Jews. He's speaking to the, to the demonic influence that's influencing them at the time. Tom Snyder taught me that. I never saw that before. Then the, the Pharisees never called him the king of the Jews, but yet he looks at the Pharisees and said, you say it's so. Why? He's talking to the spirit that's influencing them. Just like when he talks to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. He's not calling Peter Satan. He never stopped seeing Peter for who he was. He's speaking directly to the influence. What are they wanting him to do? They really don't want to kill him as much as they want to destroy his testimony and make sure that every knee on heaven and on earth and underneath the earth bows to the name of Satan. Why? Because if every knee bows, then he has control forever. And there's one knee that hasn't bowed. And more than he wanted to kill him, he wanted to steal his testimony. Think about it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look, all you have to do is just not do those things that you do. Just, just deny a God. And they make the fire hotter. Why? It was already hot enough to kill them. 
They're trying to make it so hot that it starts to actually affect them outside the fire so that they'll bow their knee before they have to kill them. They don't want to kill them. They want them to bow their knee. Why? Because they can't stand that somebody doesn't bow their knee, that somebody doesn't do what everybody else is doing. And the conviction that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived with convicted everyone around them because there was something in them that they didn't have. Your life will be a conviction or permission to people. One or the other. You'll either give them permission to live a life that God never called them to live or you'll convict them of living a life that God never called them to live. It'll be one or the other and you're the one that decides which it is. It'll either be permission or conviction. So Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. If they hate you, it's because they hated me first. Why did they hate him? Because he wouldn't be like them. Because they could slap him and rip his beard out and he still would love them. It's what they're trying to do. They don't care about killing him as much as they care about him denying that he's the Christ. That's what the enemy wants more than killing you. He wants you to lose your testimony because you without your testimony is greater use for him on this earth than you dead with a testimony is. Because we remember the martyrs. We remember the guy that wrote the song, I've decided to follow Jesus. They come to him the first week and they say, we're going to kill you if you don't, or we're going to kill your family if you don't, your children, if you don't come with us. If you don't stop preaching the gospel, if you don't bow your knee, we will kill your children. He writes the first line, I decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. They come, they kill his children. They say, we're coming back to kill your wife if you don't deny this God that you preach. They come back, they kill his wife. Though none go with me, still I follow. And he writes this song as they come and they one by one take things from his life. Why? They don't want to kill him. They want to steal the testimony from his lips. They want to shut his voice up in their conscience. And they want to prove that he's just like everybody else. And that he has a selling point. And that at some point they'll find out what that selling point is. And he'll sell his life. He'll sell his testimony. Do not sell your testimony just because they make the fire ten times hotter. Look, it's already hot enough to kill you. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego already, they understood that. They said, listen, our God will deliver us. But if he doesn't, it's okay. He's still God. Why? They were already resolved within them that there was nothing else in this world. That this world had nothing for them. That God had everything and this world had nothing. That's what Jesus said. He said, the devil has no place in me. No place in me. That's why when the enemy tried to get him to sell out, there was nothing that he could purchase because there was nothing in Jesus that he owned. And he's trying to find that place in him, in you. He's trying to see if he has a place in you. And he wants more than anything for you to deny. That's why the question is always, are you a Christian? Not just kill you in case you're a Christian. Why? Because before he kills you, he would rather steal the testimony from your lips. Because everybody remembers the one who says yes and dies and goes to be with him forever. And their testimony speaks for eternity. Nobody remembers the one that says no and hides under a desk. And that's no condemnation for the ones that said no and hid under a desk. I'm just saying that he, all he wants to do is he wants to shut you up and he wants to steal your testimony. Everybody remembers the martyr. Everybody remembers Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin and saying, listen, you guys don't understand. You killed Jesus, the Christ. They sent him to you and you killed him. And now you want to kill me because I won't stop speaking the truth. And you think that silencing my voice is going to stop that voice that's in your head. You don't even understand. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm just a messenger. And you can stone me if you'd like, but I'm not going to stop preaching the truth. 
So they decide they're going to kill him, and they start grinding their teeth. They're so angry, they're grinding their teeth, and Stephen's looking at them, and all he can think is, I get a chance to be like him because I watched my Lord do this, and now I actually get the honor and the privilege of ending my life the way he ended his. Father, don't hold their sins against them. In the same way that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, Stephen mimics that voice back. Why? What were they doing? Why did they keep, why were they grinding their teeth and holding the rocks? They're trying to intimidate him. They don't want to kill him, they just want him to shut up. If they have to, they'll kill him. But what they really want is for him to deny truth. Because then they can write his life off and then they can silence the voice that's bothering them inside them and they can silence that voice that's bothering their conscience or so they think. What they don't understand is this. I can promise you, every single one of those who as they were killing Stephen, he looked out at them and said, Father, forgive them. Don't hold their sins against them. I promise you, every single one of them you'll see in heaven. I truly believe that. I shouldn't say I promise. I believe that. Because I don't think anybody could walk away from that without believing. He actually believed. He actually believed what he said. And it made a greater impact on them than they would have ever understood. And the enemy always overplays his hand because he thinks that killing Stephen will silence Stephen's voice. I promise you that killing Stephen locked Stephen's voice into their heads for the rest of their lives. And there's no way they ever forgot that the man they were crushing with stones and that they were killing looked out at them with eyes of love and said, Father, please don't hold their sins against them. I promise you every one of the centurions and every one of the Pharisees and every one of the Jews that was standing around the throne that, I mean, the cross that day as Jesus who's been tortured, beaten, battered. Listen, they beat him. All they're saying is, listen, just deny that you are who you say you are. Just, just deny. Just bow your knee. See, the enemy comes to him when he's in the, in the wilderness. And what does he say to him? He says, listen, this is all mine. He takes him to the top of the temple. He shows him the kingdoms of this world. He's the God of this world. He's the ruler of this world. And authority has been given over to him at this time. And he's looking at Jesus and he's telling the truth. And he says, this is all mine. And if you would just bow your knee to me, I'll give it to you. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, I don't want to have to kill you. I just want one time for you to bow your knee. I just want you this one time just to sell yourself for a little bit short. Because Jesus' reward is the entire earth and the universe and the galaxies and all the inhabitants thereof. That's the promise that's in front of him. That's the joy set before him is that he would inherit the nations. And the enemy's telling him, listen, you don't have to go through all that. That cup that's before you that you're going to sweat blood in the garden, you don't really have to go through all that. What you could do is just now, just just jump ship a little early and I'll give you all of this. David, look, there's Saul and he's sleeping. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. Just jump a little bit early. Just get to the place that God's bringing you a little bit before you're supposed to be there and get there by your own hand. It's that little temptation. And he's telling Jesus, he's saying, listen, you don't have to go through all that stuff. Basically, this is what he's telling because Jesus knows why he's here. He knows why he's on earth. He knows the cup that's before him. He told the disciples, the cup that I have to drink, you can't drink. It's him in the garden saying, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He knows the will of God is for him to actually be beaten, crucified, and die on a cross to be the forgiveness of sins for humanity. He knows that. He knows why he's here. And the enemy comes to him and says, listen, in so many words, You don't have to go through all that. Just 
Just bow your knee to me. I'll give you all this. It's all mine. Simple. And see, that's why you have to know that God called you to something and you have to believe that you will see His goodness even when you're 40 days without food and even when you're starving and somebody comes to you. It's just a shortcut. You don't have to walk all the way back to town. Just command those rocks to be bread. You can do it. So what's he saying to him with every one of these things? He's saying, listen, the will of God is this thing that's way too long. And even though you know that that's his will, listen, there may be a way that you can get there faster. And if you just will do something outside of what God called you to do, you might end up where he wanted you without having to go through all the hard things that it takes to get there. The problem is is that the hard things that you go through to get there are the things that make sure that once you get there, you can stay there. If David kills Saul, he knows, I got to the throne by this sword. And if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And he would have spent the rest of his life with his sword defending a position rather than understanding, I got here because God anointed me and placed me here. And there's not a man, there's not a sword sharp enough that can take me off this throne until God decides it's my time to go. There's a lot of peace when you lay down at night in your bed and you know that you are where you are because God himself placed you there and that the only one that can take you from that place is you or God and no man. But the enemy always thinks all he needs is to make the fire a little hotter, make the opportunity a little bit easier, make it a little bit more enticing, show you a little bit more and you'll jump ship and he can have your testimony and then you can live the rest of your life because he's got what he wanted. Don't give up. Don't jump ship. Don't turn the stone to bread. Don't take the life of the man that's sitting on the throne until God tells you it's time for you to take the throne. Don't settle for a city that you can see when there's a promise of a kingdom that you can't. Don't get yourself into a position because you've got so frustrated because there's a word on your life, there's a promise on your life, there's an anointing on your life and you're not seeing it come to pass and you start to think that maybe God has forgotten and it's up to me now to make the thing happen that God promised. That's why He said He is faithful to complete what He started. He wants you to know that that if He anointed you to be king, He's preparing a throne for you and the reason you're not on the throne yet is because He doesn't want you there yet. Not because you're not doing something right or not because He's not capable. Don't jump ship early. Don't settle for things that are way less than the things He's promised just to have something. Ever. C.S. Lewis said it. He said, our problem is that we are far too easily amused. Like children content to play with mud, in mud puddles and make mud pies when a great holiday at the sea lies just over the next hill. Don't settle for a mud puddy, puddle when the ocean's over the next hill. Because the thing about it is, you'll spend the rest of your life believing that this is the best that you can have and you'll settle for a life and nobody can convince you of otherwise because it's over the next hill that the holiday at the sea is. 
And if you settle for less than fullness, if you settle for less, listen, do not settle. Don't start to change your theology just because you don't see it. Don't start to change what you believe and who you believe God is as revealed by the life of Jesus just because you don't see something happening. It may be a long time. That's okay. Eternity is a really long time. And one day we'll live in the fruit of the decisions that we make today. And that fruit will echo for eternity. I don't want to get there and hear, well done, sprinter. But I called you to a marathon. I don't want to be a bottle rocket that goes up, makes a bang. Everybody sees it and hears it for a minute. And then it withers back to the earth and it's washed into the sea and out into the ocean and decayed and gone. I want to be a star that just shines bright because I'm ever getting brighter and brighter because he's ever consuming more and more of my life and because I'm always staying faithful to what he's called me to. And I want a legacy that lasts long after I'm gone. And those don't come cheap. They don't come easy and they don't come quick. But they're worth it. They're so worth it. Don't settle for just giving lip service to the mountain and turning your back. Look at it and stare at it and expect it to move. And keep speaking to it until it does with full expectation that this time... Think about the children of Israel marching around Jericho. For seven days, they march. Fully believing that the walls are going to collapse. Fully believing that what they're doing, even if the people who didn't hear God's voice think they're crazy. Think about Noah. Noah's building this ark to everybody that didn't hear God's voice. Noah is crazy. It's okay if everybody else in your life that didn't hear his voice thinks you're crazy. Don't stop doing the crazy thing he's called you to just because no one else was called to it. I promise you. you You know for a fact they were like, hey guys, you want to go see the crazy man? <laughs> like when people who lived in Noah's town had family come into town, they were like, you guys want to go see the crazy guy? <laughs> Who's the crazy guy? His name's Noah. What's he doing? He's building a boat. <laughs> What's that? Well, it's this thing that he's going to load all the animals of the earth onto. <laughs> Why is he doing that? Well, because God is going to make it rain. <laughs> What's rain? It's water falling from the sky. <laughs> Let's go see him. And to everybody that walked by and saw Noah there building this ark for years and years and years and years and years on one word from God. It isn't like God came every single day and repeated the word to him. You don't need another word. You just need obedience to the one that you actually have. I'm telling you, listen to me. If you haven't heard God speak in a while, go back to the last time he spoke and check where your obedience is in that thing. Because he's not going to continue to speak things to you when you haven't been obedient to the things he's already spoke. Because in doing that, you heap judgment on yourself because you will be responsible for the things that he spoke to you. And he loves you too much to heap judgment on you until you can actually fully steward the things that he's speaking to you. He's not going to keep speaking new things. Because if you're not willing to be obedient to this, why would you be willing to be obedient to that? And he doesn't want you to be responsible for that. He wants you to have that, but only after you've stewarded this, right? It's His goodness. It's His kindness. To whom much is given, much is required. There's something required with everything He speaks. 
He's not going to continue to speak things that are bringing judgment into your life because you're not doing the things He's called you to do until you're obedient to the things He's already spoke. Noah has one word. Builds the ark fully believing that the day will come that he will see the fruit of his obedience. Fully believing the day will come that his family will thank him because he stood in the face of mockery and continued to do what God called him to do. There's people whose lives count and there's people whose lives matter around you and your faithfulness will actually be something that is a testimony to them and one day they'll live in the fruit of your obedience. Don't sell cheap. Don't jump early. Don't give up. Don't start. Listen, the last thing that we can, I'm just going to close up with this, but the very last thing that we can ever do is allow ourselves to start creating theology based on disappointment. And then settling in our minds that maybe God does and it must not be. Listen, if He spoke it already, He's not going to speak something new to you. He expects you to believe what He spoke and then take that word and live your life based upon it. So what makes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego capable of standing in the face of the fire? See, the enemy is always convinced, if I just make it hotter, if I just make it sound worse, if I just turn up the heat a little more, that's why the heat gets turned up in your life is because you have an enemy who believes if he could just make the fire a little bit hotter, he'll find your price, he'll find your point, and you will say, okay. And you'll bow your knee. He always thinks that he needs a new and better sword. He thinks that the sword's the problem. Remember the story we've talked about it with Abishai. He's a protector of David. He sees that there's this giant in the land, Benash Ibi. Ibi Benash. And any, I know, trust me. He's not worth remembering except for one thing. He decided he's going to kill David, and so he goes and makes, and he says he girded himself with a brand new sword. And because he had this new sword, he thought he was going to be able to take David's life. The enemy always thinks that he needs a better sword, that he needs a better plan. He doesn't understand that it's not the sword that sustains you, and it's not the sword that's going to kill you. And while he's hunting Goliath, Abishai is hunting him. And before he can touch Goliath with a new sword, an old sword takes his head off and leaves him laying in the dirt. It's not... It's not a sword. It's not a hotter fire. For the person who loves their life not unto death, there's not a fire hot enough, there's not a sword sharp enough that can make you give up and take away from the things that God's called you to. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and by loving their own life, not unto death. The minute that we understand that we're not created for ourselves, and the minute that we die to ourselves and actually entrust our lives into His hands and say, life is never again to be about me. It's about Him, and it's about laying my life down for other people. You become unpurchasable, you become unviable, and the devil has no part in you. God, I thank you for your word today. I just pray that it would be like, like, just like breath into our lungs, God. 
that hope and joy and zeal. God, that even if the season, God, even if we're in year two of 14 of being chased by an evil king, that we would not defer our hope for the day that he stops chasing us, but we would find our hope in the day that he does, understanding that you're still God, you're still king, you're still on the throne, and you still love me. And I thank you for that, Father God. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for right now, God, even for right now, things that we prayed for earlier being sealed in people's lives, God, that the hope of the gospel of Jesus would break any despair that's in anyone's life in Jesus' name. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you right now, God, for the voice coming back into people's mouths and for the expectation coming back into our lives that we will see the goodness of you, God, in the land of the living. And because we're convinced of that, there's nothing we can see that can make us despair over the things that we don't. Thank you, God, that none of us are willing to trade a kingdom we can't see for one that we can. But that we're all resolved and decided in our hearts that what you have for us is greater than anything that could be offered. You can have this world, but give us Jesus. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.